Hey, Revelation chapter three is where we're gonna be. Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13. Sorry about that, didn't, wasn't not planning on getting emotional to start this morning, but sometimes God just, he does that. Um, if, you're, if you're new, welcome. We're so glad and honored uh, that you're with us. My name is Andrew. If I don't already know you, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Ethos. And this morning, I get the joy of just opening up the Word of God with you. Um, it's a Word of God that I believe is um, true not only then to this church that we're going to read about, but it's true uh, today. But before we jump into the Word, um, I want to kind of talk about a couple of opportunities this week for you uh, to jump in with us as a church family. We gather here on Sundays, but throughout the week, we have many opportunities for you to connect and be a part of uh, our church family throughout the week. And so we're in the middle of a season, actually on the tail end of a season of prayer and fasting. Uh, so we find ourselves in the final week. Give yourself a hand, final week of prayer and fasting. For some of you, you're like, I didn't know we were praying and fasting. That's cool. Jump in with us in this final week. For some of you, you're like, yeah, I know. Believe me, I know we're on the final week of prayer and fasting. Uh, my encouragement to us as we kind of come into this final week is let's finish strong together. Like, let's, let's finish strong as, as a church family. If you're kind of struggling, you're coming in and you're puttering on fumes a little bit, you're wondering, why are we even doing this whole prayer and fasting thing? Um, I want to encourage you to jump into some of the communal prayer opportunities. For me, I get encouragement from just praying with others when I don't have the words to pray. Maybe I don't have the strength to pray. Um, I jump in with people who do have the strength and do have the words and something happens um, in that moment, so tonight, 5 p.m. at prayer gathering, we're gonna continue just pressing into the Lord together. If you wanna learn how to pray, if you wanna be prayed over, if you wanna just come and have a space to just commune with God, tonight, 5 p.m. Uh, at our Ethos offices. That's 2301 8th Avenue South if you've never been there uh, before. And then throughout the rest of this week, Monday through, Monday through Friday, we're gonna be praying online both morning and evening. So 6.30 a.m., 8.30 p.m. We'll be online praying and you can find out all of that information at ethoschurch.org forward slash awaken. The link uh, for the Zoom to pray is on there and everything else you need. And then finally, I want to invite you to come back next week. We're going to finish this season by celebrating uh, in baptism for anybody who wants to give their life to Jesus in baptism. Next week during our, our worship gatherings, we're going to have an opportunity for anybody who wants to take this, this step with Jesus. If that's you, if you want to be baptized next Sunday, something God has been inviting you to do and in, into life with him, I want to invite you to fill out the online baptism form so it's really easy Go to ethoschurch.org forward slash baptism and you can fill out the online registration. Or if you want, uh, you can fill out this card on the seats around the room and drop that in any of the mailboxes. Y'all doing all right? Doing okay? Yeah. Revelation chapter three, starting in verse seven. I actually just, I wanna read that again. I just wanna read it again. If, if you're using one of our Bibles, I think it's on page 839. So 839 if you're using one of our Bibles. Verse seven, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. 
What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, and though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth, the whole world to test the inhabitants. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of my favorite things to do in college was to play intramural sports. I loved intramural sports. Anybody play intramural sports when they were in college? Yes. One of my favorite things to do, and if you can imagine my, my college self, five foot nine, 155 pounds, I had this reputation of being this uh, elite athlete on campus. Um, one of my favorite uh, intramural sports to play was flag football. I can remember as a freshman, me and some of my friends decided, hey, we're gonna get a flag football team together. We're gonna win the championship. We're gonna make a name for ourselves as freshmen. And so we come into the first game. Let me just say, like, this team shows up, and how do I say this? Um, they very clearly took themselves very seriously. Um, they show up, and they didn't have, like, official uniforms, per se, but it's very clear by the way that they coordinated like their Under Armour attire that that is really what they were going for. And they had a playbook. Like, I'm talking like a binder with laminated plays on it. And not just a physical playbook. They had one of those like wrist playbooks on every person's. And I'm like, you know, that's like what NFL quarterbacks use. What's happening? What's happening here? And I remember like saying to the guys, I'm like, I I don't think we did this right. Like, I don't think we signed up for the right league. Well, it, ironically enough, we, we get on the field and uh, what they looked like didn't really match up with, with how they played. The next week, we as a group come in and we're like super confident, like, oh, we got this, guys. And a group of up, upperclassmen come in, second game that we play. And let me just say, we, uh, we, we, we got our tails absolutely whooped. And we were a little underwhelmed by what, what, what they looked like. And here's the thing. We've talked about it a number of times. We do this all the time. And I've learned this lesson over and over and over again in so many different settings. Things are not always as they appear. Things are not always as they appear. And this morning, we're gonna look at a church. We're gonna look at a church who from the outside Honestly, they don't seem to have a lot going for them. Like, from the eyes of the world, they're gonna really look small and insignificant. It was a church that was not only criticized and ostracized by the culture, this was gonna be a church that wasn't even allowed in the church buildings within their own hometown. It was a church that Jesus describes as one having little strength. 
Now, we don't exactly know how little, but the language actually suggests, and scholars agree, that this was not an impressive church. This church really, it wasn't well known. Now, it stands really in contrast to the church that we looked at last week, if you remember. The church in Sardis, which had this really amazing reputation of being a church that was alive. Sardis, see, Philadelphia was no one. Sardis was the church that everybody was talking about. Sardis was the church that was big, it was massive, it was growing. Now, the church in Philadelphia that we're looking at this week, quite the opposite. The church in Philadelphia, it wasn't producing the latest and greatest worship albums that everyone was listening to. Like, they, they, their pastor wasn't getting quoted on Twitter. Like, they didn't have a huge Instagram following. But when Jesus, when he looks at this church, this church of little strength, he sees something totally different than what the world sees. When he looks at this church, he sees something beautiful. And as he says it, he sees and he looks at a church that he loves, a church that he's proud of. Now, we find ourselves on the sixth of seven churches in Revelation. If you're new with us, what we've been doing is taking one church a week, looking at this letter that Jesus has written through his servant John to each of these seven churches. Now, I stepped back this week. I just kind of took some time to kind of look across like all seven letters. I was like, God, what are you doing? What are you saying? Is there anything that I need to notice? And in most of the letters, Jesus has a couple of things happening. He has some encouraging words to say, and then he has some really hard words to say, some words of rebuke. Now, there are two churches that Jesus basically has nothing positive to say about them, the church of Sardis from last week and the church that we're going to look at next week, Laodicea. So the two churches lacking positive qualities are the churches that on, on the surface seem to be the ones that are most impressive while two churches that have no negative qualities listed or mentioned about them seem to be the ones, seem to be the ones that at first glance are helpless, weak, and insignificant. The church of Smyrna, which we already looked at, and this church here in Philadelphia. Now, the Spirit of God was just re-highlighting this reality again to me this week. Jesus could care less about how things appear on the surface. He could care less about how things appear on the surface. In each letter, he makes it abundantly clear. Hey, I know your deeds. I know your heart. And it's what's below the surface. It's, it's what's on the inside as a church community. It's what's on the inside of your heart that really is going to matter for eternity. And it's this church in Philadelphia that we're going to see and we're going to remind ourselves this week that when we are weak, when we seem to have nothing going for us, that when we seem to have no one or nothing to turn to, Jesus has been and will be there for those who put their love and trust in him, no matter what. He's going to remind us that our power, our power as followers of Jesus is actually made perfect in our weakness. And this morning, what we're gonna do, we're gonna look at the ways that this church cultivated a genuine and authentic love for Jesus. And then we're gonna look to the promises that he makes in light of that. But before we dive in, I really want us to understand the context. 
Context first, and we've said it each week. Context for both the church and the city are gonna help us bring clarity to what Jesus is saying. Because a lot of this is confusing to us, but when we look at the context for where this church was and how this church was living, it's gonna bring clarity to what Jesus is saying. So let's first start with the city. The city of Philadelphia, located 30 miles southeast of Sardis. It was founded by King Attalus Philadelphus. He named the city after himself and in light of his love for his brother, hence city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, it was really founded as a city, as this frontier post for the Adelid kingdom. See, the Adelids, they had embraced the Hellenistic way of life. So their, their intention was to bring the cultures of Greece and Rome to the rest of the world. And so Philadelphia, it was the easternmost city on the border of Asia. So it really became this strategic city for commerce and for trade. Now, if you wanted to go east into the rest of the world, you came through the city of Philadelphia. Its nickname was actually Little Athens due to its beauty and its buildings and ultimately all of the temples that were built to the pagan gods sound familiar to some of the other churches that we've looked at. It was really this beautiful and thriving city up until 17 AD. 17 AD, this massive earthquake devastates the city of Philadelphia destroying most of the city. And earthquakes actually continued to decimate the city of Philadelphia for the next 20 years. So people actually began, because of the earthquakes that were happening, they began to move outside of the city. Everyone was afraid to live in the city for fear of being crushed, so they actually moved outside of the city. And it went from this thriving city of commerce to the city that was marked by poverty and devastation. That's the city. Let's talk about the church. Now, the church was being assaulted on two sides, on two fronts. They were considered, number one, outcast by the culture. They, they would not worship the pagan gods, and they were not just considered outcast by the cultures. They were considered outcast by their Jewish brothers and sisters. They were not allowed inside the temple to worship because they believed Jesus was the Messiah. You see, in the early decades of the church, Churches were, were mostly Jewish or a mix of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And the earliest Christians were actually still a part of the Jewish community. So they would still attend synagogue. They would still go and worship. But the Christians, these Jewish believers in Jesus, the Messiah, were rejected. They weren't allowed entrance into this place of worship that they had known their entire lives. So whether it was one, physical devastation from the earthquakes, or two, being persecuted by the culture, or three, being rejected by their longtime Jewish friends and family, this church, from the outside, didn't have a lot going for them. But despite seeming weak, despite seeming insignificant to the world, Jesus, he saw something burning brightly in the hearts of these believers and followers of his and the church of Philadelphia. And what I wanna do, I just wanna take a moment, I wanna lean in and I wanna learn from these brothers and sisters of ours. One of the two churches that doesn't have a single negative thing said about them, I want us to lean in and I want us to learn and glean. And here's what we're gonna do. First, we're gonna look at three characteristics Jesus names that mark this church. He points out three things. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna turn our attention to the promises 
he makes in light of their faithfulness. So let's turn back, verse eight, and begin to look at these three characteristics that Jesus, Jesus highlights. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So first thing, they kept his word. Second thing, they did not deny his name. So if you're taking notes, number one, they kept his word. How, how were these followers of Jesus able to hold fast? How were they able to remain true to their first love? First thing Jesus points out, a deep love for the word of God. They knew the word of God. They loved the word of God. They were, as Psalm 1 puts it, you remember starting our year in Psalm 1? They were like trees planted by streams of water. They delighted in the law of the Lord. They meditated on it day and night. The word of God for them was not optional. It was not optional. It was not a box to check. It was not an historical document designed for their deconstruction. For them, the word of God, it was the bread of life. It was gonna be the thing that sustained them. It was gonna be that anchor for them to hold true and fast to the ways of Jesus, to not succumb to the pressures and the theology of the culture. They knew the word of God. They loved the word of God. They clearly lived the word of God. One of my favorite people in the world to hang out with is a man named Dennis Malone. Some of you may remember Dennis and Marsha Malone. They were a part of our church family before moving back home to California. And I loved hanging out with Dennis, and I still love hanging out with Dennis when he comes into town, because he, to me, is one of the most tangible examples of what the joy of the Lord like, looks like on a person, looks like in a person. Have you ever been around one of those people where you're like, oh, the the joy of the Lord, like that's what it looks like, hanging out with you. And I know that this didn't happen by accident to Dennis because I know his story. I know he's had weak moments where the Lord has lifted him up. I know he's had a lot of moments where he's had to turn to the word of God to remind himself of who he is and what God is like. And if you're ever hanging out with Dennis, you're gonna have these moments where you're like, wait a second, I think like Dennis has been quoting the book of Ephesians for the last five minutes. Like you're, you're not really sure like where scripture ends and where Dennis begins. It's this really beautiful, beautiful thing. And I spend time around Dennis. I'm like, I want to know the word of God like you know the word of God. I want to believe in the word of God like you believe in the word of God. I want to be transformed by the word of God like his life has been transformed by the word of God. And I love the fact here that Jesus says it's his word. Did you notice that? My word. Because we know that all of scripture is pointing to him. John actually in his gospel says what? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This book of revelation that we're in, it's a revelation of who? Jesus. If there was a prayer that I would invite us to pray as a church, I think, I don't know if this would be the only prayer, but this would be a prayer. That our love for the word of God would grow exponentially. 
in the days and years to come, that our hunger for the word of God, and I need this myself too. This is not a prayer, I'm just praying for you. This is a prayer, I'm praying for myself. Now why? Not to become scholars, although that's good. Not to be impressive, but to actually know the word, to live the word, to believe the word. Will you join me in praying this prayer for our church? Will we right now in this moment just take a moment to learn from our brothers and sisters in Philadelphia? Say, oh, a life that Jesus loved is a life marked by his word. May it be written on the tablet of our hearts. May it be the lens through which we see the world. So number one, keepers of the word. Number two, they have not denied his name. They have not denied the name of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and said, you have not denied my name and I love that about you. You see, they lived in a moment in history where casual or cultural Christianity, that that vocabulary didn't even exist. When these letters were written, it was a time where Christian persecution was getting ready to just absolutely take off. It was ramping up. So at this time, if you were accused of being a Christian, what happens is you were brought before the pro-council, you were brought before the imperial governor, and you were asked point blank, are you a Christian? If they said they were, they were told you have to curse Christ and worship the emperor. If they did, if they denied Christ, they could be spared. If they would not, they would be tortured and executed. So these words here from Jesus to this church in Revelation wasn't just for the church in this moment, but for the church in the years to come that would face intense, heavy persecution. Jesus saw, oh, you love my word. You're not ashamed of being my followers. And he says, I love this about you. Hold on. Remain faithful. And because you won't deny my name, because you don't deny my name, one day I'm not going to deny your name. In fact, I'm going to give you my name, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Now, we live in a place, in a moment in time, where right now it, it, it's not life and death. But I don't know if you feel this, things have shifted. Like we live in a moment of history where things have shifted. Because at one time, the badge of Jesus, it, it was this badge of honor. I think we live in a moment of time now where more often than not, the badge of Jesus that you wear is viewed as a badge of bigotry. And in this moment of history, we need followers of Jesus who are true to his word, living examples of his agape love, and that don't deny his name. Man, I was just reflecting on that this week. I was honestly very convicted. I kept asking myself the question, okay, if people don't know that I am a follower of Jesus, am I really following Jesus? If the people that you live around if your neighbors, if your coworkers, if your friends, if your classmates, if they don't know that you're a follower of Jesus, I think you need to stand back and assess why that is. There, there is a reason that someone felt compelled to spend millions of dollars on ads rebranding the name of Jesus. 
Because I think far too often throughout history, followers of Jesus have claimed his name and not looked like him. And we're at a moment of time, we're in a moment of history where we as followers of Jesus, by our actions and our words, can't deny his name. So although from the world's perspective, we may look weak, although from the world's perspective, we may look little, Although from the world's perspective, we may look somewhat irrelevant, may we be like this church here in Philadelphia who knows that our identity and our strength and our power comes not from the ways and the things of this world, but from the one who overcame it. And may we, by the way that we love the world, show the world that he loves them too. So number one, They loved his word. Number two, they did not deny his name. Third characteristic of this faithful church, Jesus, he begins in verse 10 by saying this, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. This is is why this church is often referred to as the faithful church. That's the language that a lot of people give this church. They had endured all the pressures, all the hardships, all the heartaches that all the other churches had experienced, but this church had remained faithful. These words, endure patiently, are synonymous with steadfastness, perseverance. So despite the struggle, like, and they were struggling, despite the struggle, despite the circumstances, they remained faithful to Jesus and his word. They trusted Jesus. They loved Jesus. They remained loyal to Jesus, even though the circumstances dictated another response. Even though they were small in stature, weak in the eyes of the world, they remained steadfast and faithful. His power had truly become perfect in their weakness. And I I know in a room this size, with this many people, like there are some of you right now this morning who are right in the midst of the trials. You find yourself right in the midst of the heartaches of life. You find yourself in a moment where you're questioning where God even is in the midst of it. You find yourself potentially in a moment where you're just ready to give up and hit the eject button. And you need to hear these words. Maybe that's God right now. You need to hear these words. Hold on, hold on, hold on to Jesus, hold on to faith. As much as you wanna let go in this moment, don't let go because Jesus makes some incredibly strong promises to this weak little church and we're gonna get to those. I want us to end our time by looking to these incredible promises that Jesus makes, not only to them in this moment, but incredible promises to Jesus makes for us right now. First one, Jesus promises them an open door that no one can shut. Verses seven and eight, let's go back and read those together. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, you might have found yourself asking, okay, what 
What is this open door? What's this open door that Jesus is talking about? Well, some scholars point out that this language might refer to an evangelistic open door. And you do see that in scripture where they refer to an open door as an opportunity to share the gospel. And that that may be true in some regard here to this church. But I think when you look at the entire context, the, the open door has to do with salvation itself. It's the open door that Jesus is opening to his saving grace and mercy. It's the open door into the kingdom of God. Think about some of the parables that Jesus tells. Matthew 25, where you have the bridesmaids like knocking at the door, wanting to enter into the kingdom of God. Or in the very next letter, Jesus is gonna say himself, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person. Now in verse seven, Jesus is described as the one who holds the key of David. Now this is actually a reference to Isaiah 22. The early, the early listeners of this letter would have understood, oh, this is referencing Isaiah 22, one of the lesser known messianic prophecies. In Isaiah 22, it's prophesied that a man named Shebna, an unfaithful steward of the palace, is gonna be ousted as the steward. You see, in that time, like where you had kings and you had actual palaces, there was a steward and the steward was in charge of letting people in and letting people out. The steward was one that held the keys. They were the ones that let certain people in certain rooms and wouldn't let other people in other rooms. They, ha- they held the keys. And Shebna was an unrighteous steward. And next would be Eliakim. Eliakim would be this good and righteous steward. His example would point towards a coming kingdom and a coming king of eternal greatness. The authority that he would have over David's house would be like that Jesus has over the heavenly kingdom. In Isaiah 22, it literally says, he opens the door that no one can shut and he shuts the door that no one can open. Entrance into the heavenly palace, entrance into the eternal kingdom is what it's talking about here in Philadelphia. That is the open door that no one can shut. You have entrance into fellowship with God and eternal life with the Son, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant you seem in the eyes of the world or anyone else. No one is strong enough to close the door of salvation that Jesus opens. No one. No one is strong enough to close the door of salvation that Jesus opens. Do do you believe that? Like this morning, do you believe that? That means that you, yourself, you yourself are not strong enough to close the door into life with Jesus that he has opened. Sometimes I think we do this. We think, oh, man, this, this, this thing in my past, this sin in my past is gonna keep me from life with Jesus. Oh, I've ran too far in the other direction. There's no way that I could come back home. I've left him behind. There's no way the door will be open for me. And like the father waiting on the prodigal, the door into the arms of Jesus are always wide open for you. The door into the arms of Jesus are always wide open. The next promise 
I wanna point out is he is coming soon. If you're taking notes, he is coming soon. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, Jesus actually repeats this promise five times, repeats it five times. And a similar phrase at the beginning of Revelation, he says the same thing. This is a promise for then, and this is a promise for now. Although I think it's kind of hard for us to grasp. I think it's hard for us to sometimes understand this reality because Jesus's perspective is different than our perspective. Jesus is saying this from an eternal perspective. He's the one who existed before creation. He's the one that's going to usher in the eternal kingdom. He says, I'm coming soon. He's the one that's seen generation from generation pass like that. Like in Jesus's eyes, generation after generation has come and gone. And these promises that Jesus makes, it's not, it's not written from our perspective. It's written from the eternal perspective of Jesus. That's why he says, hold on, remain faithful. Yes, like you've endured a lot. Yes, you find yourself weak, but I promise I am coming soon. And he says, your temporary pain, I promise, will pale in comparison for your eternal glory. Some of you need to hear that now this morning. Your temporary pain, the temporary circumstances of your life right now, I promise you, Jesus promises you, will pale in comparison for the eternal glory that is coming when he returns. And then he says, I will make you pillars. I will make you pillars, verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Now, Jesus, he ends this letter with two promises, one pillars and a second, a name that we're gonna end with. And he's gonna remind them, he's gonna remind them of their identity. He's going to do it here with this metaphor and he's gonna do it in just a moment. Now, verse 12 would have really hit a chord with these early believers. Think about it. A, a church that had endured earthquakes where pillars around them literally were just crumbled in eyesight a church who had been kicked out of the temple of worship that they had always worshiped in, they're promised a future dwelling that they would never have to leave and that would never be destroyed. And remember, Jesus is the keeper of this door. He holds the keys. And he says, hey, those of you who are victorious, those who remain faithful to my word, those who won't deny my name, you, you aren't just welcomed into the house of God. You're gonna be pillars in the house of God. They feel small. They feel weak. They feel little. They feel insignificant. Things had maybe not turned out like they had hoped. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, yes, I, I resonate with that. Thinking, okay, the, the way that life has turned out is not exactly the way that I thought what life was going to be. This isn't the plan I wrote. This isn't the thing that I dreamed of. I thought everything was going to be up and to the right. But here you are, you find yourself this morning, and you're walking with a limp. Maybe physically, maybe metaphorically. You find yourself in a moment of struggle. You find yourself in a moment of doubt and you need to hear this promise from Jesus. You who are weak and struggling now, you will be strong. 
you one day will feel like a pillar, sturdy, dwelling forever in the house where God himself dwells. Your identity as a follower of Jesus is royalty in the house of God. That's your seat. That's your dwelling place. And lastly, he seals their identity with this threefold name. Let's keep reading in verse 12. We'll end here. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Jesus, he ends this letter. He gives them three names which would have just sealed up their hearts with perfection. He says, the name of thy God, the name of the city of my God, my new name. And I love how many times Jesus here uses the word my. My, my, my. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, people say you're nothing. People say you're insignificant. People say you're weak. I say you're mine. I'm gonna give you an eternal identity. I'm gonna give you an eternal home. And I'm gonna give you eternal friendship with myself. You will have my name written on you. But you won't just have my name written on you. I will be with you dwelling forever. Keep on, Philadelphia, he writes. Hold on. Keep on, Ethos Church. Jesus has not, and he will not let us down. So although you may be weak, although you may feel unimpressive in the eyes of the world, though the struggles of life seem to keep knocking at your door, hold on. I'm coming soon. Keep my word. Do not deny my name. Remain faithful, for I am with you and I love you, and the promises of today, I promise, will pale in comparison for the promises of eternity. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What what is the Spirit of God saying to you this morning? Is he inviting you back into a life in his word that you've been neglecting? Is he inviting you to be, to be bold and loving in his name? Is he calling you to remain faithful and hold fast to the faith when you find yourself in a moment where it's really hard to believe that these promises are true? Is he highlighting a promise to you this morning maybe that you've let him go of? Whatever it is, this is why we come to the table each and every Sunday morning. We say, Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. Jesus, the promises of today pale in comparison to the promises for eternity. So this morning, I wanna pray, and then I want us to go to the table with that heart. So Jesus, we look to you. The one who says, I see you, I love you, hold on. Remain faithful. God, I ask that you would just highlight the things that the Spirit is saying to us this morning. Spirit, will you come? Will you lead our time around the communion table?
Will you lead our time as we close out in worship? Will you speak to us the things that you want to speak? And Jesus, it's in your awesome and holy and amazing name, I pray. Amen. Let's stand and head to the tables together this morning. If you need prayer, if you want to respond in any way, shape, or form, you can go to the respond banner. We'll have some men and women that would love to pray and walk with you and talk with you this morning. I love you, Ethos.